0: of what happens during the course of a summer, but uh, we are in a series in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, which is the last book of Scripture. It's also the last recorded words of Jesus to the church. That means you and me. We're in church today, right? But the church was those who were followers of Jesus Christ. And if you've not been with us for the prior three times that we've talked on um, uh, the book of Revelation, the first three chapters, the Apostle John, one of the last remaining apostles of Jesus Christ, was on an island called Patmos in the Aegean Sea. And he was there because he was being punished for the faith, being a follower of Jesus. And it says in Revelation 2 that on the Lord's Day, he says, he was taken up in the Spirit and he heard behind him a loud voice like a trumpet that said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicean. And then John says, he turned around to hear the voice that was speaking to me, To him, And having turned, he saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands was one standing like a son of man. He was clothed in a robe, reaching down to his feet. He was girded across his chest with a golden sash, and his head and his hair were white like wool, and his eyes were like blazing fire, and his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters." And in his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. What would you do if you had seen that? Well, John said he fell. flat. Jesus laid his hand on him. For that's who it was, the one who was walking among the lampstands. It was Jesus Christ himself appearing to John on the island of Patmos to reveal to him a word that needed to be spoken to you and I. Not just in the churches then, but the churches today. And Jesus laid his hand on him and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and last. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. And then he said, Write this down. Now, I'm sort of myself coming and going in this series a little bit as there's other responsibilities and and other things we've been speaking on. And I was sort of jacked to get back into these words of Jesus again this week. And I thought to myself, well, are you guys excited about getting back into the words of Jesus? I think it's like gold to have words of Jesus that are being spoken to me personally, to being spoken to us as a church body personally. There's a lot of words that are spoken. Spoken by friends. Spoken by family. Spoken by co-workers. Spoken by politicians. Spoken by commercials. But we get the words of Jesus to cherish. Except what we're going to find out today is that the words of Jesus are not always fun words to cherish. Many times, The words of Jesus are a hard word to us. Are you ready for hard words as well as encouraging words from Jesus? Na-na-na-na-na, I can't hear you. You remember playing that, right? And sometimes I think that's the way Christians are. We're like, oh yeah, we're all happy-go-lucky, all blessings. And then Jesus takes a little turn to speak to us strong words. We're like, I-na-na, I can't hear you. I want you to hear the voice of Jesus speaking to you and me as individuals, to our families, and to us as a church family. Right here at the end of June, God has a word for us. Will you pray with me? Lord, today we do invite not your presence, for we know wherever two or three are gathered in your name that you are here. But we invite you to come and dig out our ears and encourage us as well as speak to us directly. Lord, I'm mindful in a morning like this. Each of us come from different paths. There's different crises going on. There's different opportunities going on amongst everybody that's seated here. And not only those who are able to join us today, but those who are part of our body that are out traveling or doing other kinds of opportunity things. Lord, may you be the one who speaks to us and may our life be invested in who you are, and may all things that we have flow from your throne. In your name we pray, amen. So, we talked about Ephesus. We talked about Smyrna. Today we're going to talk about Pergamus or Pergamum. Same thing. As you see, it's one, two, three, and Smyrna is just north, probably about 40, 50 uh, some miles uh, from where we talked about a couple weeks ago with Smyrna. And Pergamos was a pretty important kind of place. And we're going to see here why. Now, when we go to the scripture, a lot of times, and I've done it for the first two churches, I pull out um, pictures of what these cities look like today ruins, or even if they're uh, an alive city. Ephesus was only ruins, right? Ephesus does not exist as uh, a city that's lived in today. Smyrna uh, does. It goes by another name, but it's a thriving city of millions of people in Turkey, all right? But for Pergamos, it's another one of those cities that there's a new city that's there, but it's down in the valley, but Pergamos proper was up on top of a hill. And instead of showing you ruins, I thought I'd show you a depiction of, of what they thought Pergamus looked like in the day that this letter was written to them. Pergamus was a thriving political hub. It was not a hub of uh, commerce. Um, it wasn't a societal hub necessarily like the other two cities we looked at, but it was a political center, a base of operations. And so in Revelation 2.12, these are the words Jesus said to John on the island of Patmos. Write this down to the angel of the church of Pergamum write. And so when John heard these words, it wasn't like, I've never been there before. I wonder what that place looks like. I'm pretty sure John had been around to many of these places because they were all centrally located and he himself had been sort of the bishop or the pastor of Ephesus. And so when you thought of Pergamum, you thought, oh, that's that city that's way up on a hill. And Pergamum actually means um, exalted, high, lifted up. All right? And it was a, a... mountain peak, if you will, that was a 1,000 feet above the valley, and it went straight up on every side except one side. In that side, you had a meandering kind of road you could make your way up to, but it was easy to fortify, and Pergamum was very important in a political manner for all of Asia Minor or or, um, Western Turkey today. And that is because its leader, a number of years prior, had decided that he would just give his city away to the Romans. And so the Romans said, what? Thank you very much. We're glad we don't have to conquer you. We're going to take you on. And they made Pergamum the political capital of Asia Minor, the western Turkey area. Now, are you mindful that a lot of times the political center of a uh, country or a state isn't always the commercial center or hub? Like what is the uh, – where is the state capital at in New York? Albany. It's not New York City, right? How about Wisconsin? Yeah, you would know that, Mr. Green Bay guy. Uh, <laughs> Madison, It's it's not – Milwaukee or somewhere like that. What about uh, Illinois? I am so glad that you people know something about the Midwest coming from the Midwest. I'm glad to hear that. Yes, Springfield. It's not Chicago. Just like in California, the political capital is not Los Angeles or San Francisco. It's Sacramento. All right, so you got a little bit of a feel. This is Pergamum. So it's like, oh, that's where all the official business was uh, at play and what was taking on. And if you were to go there today, these are the ruins that you would find. They're still there. It was a real city. And you see there on the hillside, uh, it's up top, right? We're looking from the valley up to what would have been Pergamum of the day. That was an impressive, royal city on a hill, lofty and exalted. And Jesus had a word to the church that was trying to do ministry on the top of that mountain. You walk around the ruins today and all those different places that were highlighted with uh, that modern depiction, you could say, oh, this is where that was, and this is where that was. I don't know about you if you like to look at old rocks or not. I used to think, how boring to look at old rocks. But then when I start to see it all tied in together with real life and real scripture, you see, you and I, we don't have a faith that's make believe or made up or is a legend. The Christian faith is a historical faith. And the more you plunge into the depths of discovering the Christian faith and the settings and Scripture, the more you'll find out that it's real and we're an ongoing history from that day and age. They could seat 10,000 people in that amphitheater. They had 200,000 volumes in their library. Their library competed for knowledge with uh, Alexandria of Egypt. That's a pretty steep slope to sit on. I actually sat on that slope when I had the opportunity to visit Pergamum. Melissa and I did in 2004. You're walking around looking at the rocks, making sure you weren't falling. They're pointing out this, pointing out that. Can you get... I'm understanding why I get a little excited when I come back and go, great, we just talk about the book of Revelations and the churches and revelations when you physically have been there. Because you can identify with the context of that culture and all that they were up against. There were a lot of buildings. And there were a lot of temples as well. To the angel of the church in pilgrim, I'm right. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Now this is kicking back to that vision. And when John turned around and go, who's speaking to me? And he sees this one like a son of man standing in all of his brilliance. But isn't it interesting when he says you know, sound his voice was like the voice of rushing waters, right? And he held seven stars. And the seven stars mean something. And out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. And you're thinking to yourself... Oh, that's ugly. Well, the sharp double-edged sword had significant meaning. And here to the church of Pergamum, the angel of the church is to have an understanding of this, is that the words of him who is now speaking to you are sharp, and it's a double-edged sword. You see, in the Roman world, he who welded the sword had the power. They didn't have, you know, gun debates back then, right? They didn't have guns, right? They had swords. And if you had a double-edged sword and you were able to carry it around in public, you also were empowered to use that sword for life and for death. So certain people were given the right to the sword. The sword of it had a double edge. They sort of called it the the turn-and-twist killer blade. Turn it and twist it. So it was a feared sword. And not everybody carried swords around. Hey, only those who had the power and the authority to do it. And here's Jesus coming against them in that day and saying, Listen, you want to talk who really has the authority to speak truth? The one who has the authority over death and life itself? I am the one who welds the sharp, double-edged sword. And so this vision of Jesus speaking to John, the vision here as depicted and he's, he's getting ready to speak words into them as a church is, is is one that's very graphic in their mind and one that brought a sense of, of rightful fear because he is the one who had the right and the power and the authority to speak. But When Jesus speaks, Sometimes He speaks to us with words of affirmation and encouragement. Because a sword can be used for very good things. Not just to cause death. But sometimes His words, na-na-na-na-na, i am not going to listen to those. are words not just of exhortation to us. They are words of rebuke. And they can be words of condemnation. It's like, oh, Carrie, don't go there. This is supposed to be happy hour for us. Sunday morning, Jesus, you know. You're going to really get heavy with us now? Friends, when you have all authority in heaven on earth, and you know everything, and you are a righteous and just and holy God, as well as a loving God, you have the right to speak sharp words. Is your heart, are your ears open? to some of the hard words that Jesus wants to share to you. You see, Christ's words can bring either blessing or condemnation. And I, this week, had to say, Jesus, may I not shun the words of condemnation if I am not walking in some of the manner that you want me to walk. Because ultimately, he's not out to destroy us. He's out to give us life and to give it abundantly as the Scriptures teach us. He taught when he walked physically here on this earth. But somebody who is wayward, someone who is not listening to him, somebody who's playing life totally indifferent and pursuing things they shouldn't pursue, he's going to give a word of warning. And I need to be receptive to that word of warning. If you were heading up the 15 and you were going to get on that crazy 91 and praise God whenever they get that thing finished and they add those new lanes, right? <laughs> you're heading up over that ramp and you're swinging over to come back down on 91 from the 15. If for some reason an earthquake or some problem happened structurally and that ramp just stopped, wouldn't you appreciate it if somebody at the bottom of the ramp would flag you down and say, Stop! Don't go up there because you will die. So, Jesus, speak words of blessing to me, but with your sharp double-edged sword, you speak words of danger, condemnation, instruction to me as well, because I do not want to find myself in a place that I should not go. This verse in Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of the soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before His eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Now that can be encouraging to you or it can be scary to you. Do not... Neglect time in the Word of God. This is your instruction book for life, but this is also the book for you to have, find, and sustain life. And sometimes there are hard words in here. As the old revivalist Vance Havner used to say, when I read the Bible, it's like wiring an old house. You never know when you're going to get shocked. <laughs> I was like, Oh my goodness, I don't want to hear that. No, no. And so here's Jesus coming to this body. to give you a little bit more depiction of what was happening in the city of Pergamum. I want to have you listen to Joe Stowell. Joe Stowell was, um, uh, he was president of Moody Bible for a while, and now is president of Cornerstone University in the Midwest. And uh, he's done some really nice depictions on the day of discovery um, concerning each of these seven cities. And here's a little bit of a clip from. His time in Pergamum.
1: When it came to worshiping the gods of the empire, Pergamum was exactly the right place to be. Nearly every major deity had a temple here. It would be like going to Hollywood. (laughs) And in Hollywood, you can take a star tour. They put you in a little van and you drive through these exclusive neighborhoods and see where all the important people really live. Coming to Pergamum, in terms of worship, Exactly like that. Um, no matter what you desired or what you needed or what you dreamt for, the gods would offer here to fulfill that for you. Pergamum was exactly the right zip code to be in. The array of gods and goddesses in this town was impressive. Right over this hill here, still existing, is the ancient altar to Zeus. Zeus was the king of Mount Olympias, where all the gods and goddesses dwelt. Uh, so he was the king of kings. Uh, Zeus was the god of the sky, of lightning and thunder, and would use lightning against his enemies. It's said that he consorted with mortals and gods and goddesses. Well, if you needed something done, <laughs> that was the place to go. He had all the power. But maybe you came to Pergamum for pleasure. Then why not go to the temple of Dionysus? Uh, He was the god of wine and revelry. Uh, You would go there and participate in the festivities, get drunk with everyone else, participate in the orgies. Sometimes the frenzy was so, so strong that it would end up in the taking of human life. Going to that temple was like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. <laughs> We're going to New Orleans for the Mardi Gras. But if you're in need of food, need of a good crop, then you want to go to the temple of the goddess of Demeter. She was the one who could guarantee you food on your table and a wonderful crop at the end of the season. Maybe you're sick. Then here in Pergamum was the temple to Asclepius the God of healing. It was one of the major spots for healing in the world. Pilgrims came from all over to come to this temple. And in this temple, it was the snakes that did the healing. Um, The priests of the temple would often put people in a trance. They would go to sleep, and, and then they would get a vision of what was wrong with them, and they could take it to the doctor and tell the doctor, and he would try to somehow medicate it. Uh, In an even stranger ritual, they would often put the sick people in a large room at night that's pitch black, and in the middle of the night, in their deep trance-like sleep that had been induced on them, they would release the snakes to crawl over their bodies in a ritual of healing. Interestingly, even today, the medical symbol that we see is a rod with snakes wound around it. It dates right back to that hospital here in Pergamum. Or maybe you need wisdom. You just don't know what to do. Then come to the temple of Athena, the goddess of wisdom, the goddess who would understand and form great military strategies for Rome to win its wars. Or if you wanted to affirm that Caesar was Lord of Lords, the savior of your life, granting you safety and peace, then you would come to the temple of the imperial cult up on the top of the mountain, the temple to Trajan. This was the scene at Pergamum. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you refuse to bow the knee, it was a good thing for you to hear what Jesus said at the beginning of the letter when he said, I know the place where you dwell, where Satan's throne is.
0: Is that a foreign culture to you and me? It's a foreign culture. To try to comprehend the temples to these various Greek gods and how people would flock to them and from one to another, seeking out whether it's power and favor, provision and food and means, healing, wisdom and knowledge, political favor. And they would roam from one temple to another. But yet it's not necessarily maybe so much unlike today, is it? We don't have Greek gods and we don't have these temples that we rush to to try to bow down and worship or give incense to a god or goddess. But we still have the same gods that we pursue. Power. Wealth. Fame. Materialism. Sexual fulfillment. Wisdom. Knowledge we just go to groups, get involved in clubs, go on the internet, network with the right kind of people. Satan's so predictable he really doesn't have a lot that's new, and so you don't sit back and sort of discuss going all oh, those. People in antiquity, they they were so foolish for believing there's multiple gods. We have the same kind of things that we encounter and we're enticed to today. But I love what Jesus says. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in our city where Satan lives. This is Jesus speaking. Maybe you don't believe that Satan exists, but Jesus did, but he knew that Satan existed not only as one of the, a fallen angel that brought corruption to this earth, but he exists by being an adversary or thwarting God's will, and that can come from ideologies as well as a being. And Jesus would say, "I believe to us as well as He said to those who were in Pergamum, "I know where you live." In other words, you don't have to cry out and go, Lord, God, this world's going crazy and nuts. Look at what's happening around us. Look at the decisions that are being made or not being made, you know, by Supreme Courts or by laws or by people in my neighborhood association. Even I, I you know, you don't know where I live. And Jesus says, I know exactly where you live. You live where Satan has his throne. Now, for the people in Pergamum, they had a visual of this, did they not? They had a visual of this. In particular, their visual had to do with the altar of Zeus. It was quite prominent. The all-powerful Zeus. And in that altar of Zeus, they would do some really sad, despicable kind of things. In fact, that Antipas guy that was mentioned, my faithful witness, the only person that's mentioned by name is a martyr, all right, in the book of Revelation. Antipas, Jesus knew him. You'll probably get to meet him if if you're on your way to being eternally with the Lord. And Antipas would say, yeah, it was a pretty tough day when that happened. Tradition has it that Antipas, who was bishop or pastor of Pergamum, appointed by John himself, was placed into an awkward predicament where he was supposed to declare Caesar as Lord, and he wouldn't. He would continue to stand his own. He would continue to speak truth. He would continue to toe the line, if you will, as a rock-solid Christ follower. And so because he didn't obey, and they wanted to set an example, they took him, to the altar of Zeus and inside there would be a a bronze bull that was hollow on the inside. It's disgusting to think about. It's traumatic, if you will. But they uh, would take individuals like him and place them inside of the bull and place their head up into the neck of the bull. And at the end of the bull were like horns uh, where the nostrils were and you could blow out through those nostrils and sounds would come what they would then do was they'd light a fire underneath the individual who was in the bronze bowl and cook them to death. And as they're wailing and they're moaning, it's as if the bull would come alive and speaking through and yelling out through those nostrils, the horns. I know where you live. There's some despicable, disgusting, broken, terrible, sinful kind of things that happen around you. Antipas was true to me, the seed of Satan. The altar of Zeus, if you're to go there, is just sort of a, a dusted area, a couple trees. When they pointed it out, I'm like, that's it? Well, the reason being is in the 1800s, there's an individual who helped tear down the altar of Zeus, and they hauled it off, and they took it. Berlin. You can go and see the altar of Zeus in Berlin today inside a building. That's a model in the lower left hand corner. That's the actual people sized thing. You can walk into it. I think it's closed down for a couple, three years for some renovations. But you can go there and you can see the altar to Zeus. It's interesting, they said, because this was taken and established and built there in the 1930s, I guess. The Nazi area architect, Albert Speer used the Pergamum altar as a model for the Zeppelin Tribune. What was there? Hitler. And instead of a, an altar place with a bronze bull, that's where he would stand and give his speeches to masses of people. Tragic when you think about it, especially in light of the Holocaust than the six million Jews that were killed. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city. I'm encouraged that Jesus knows where I live. How about you? Jesus knows your circumstances. It may not be dire circumstances like losing your very life, but it may be opposition you have in the workplace. It may be challenges you have in an educational world. It may be struggles that you're having in family, extended family and opposition that's against you. It may be truth and error and wickedness and sin that's just hounding at you from society and friends and family even. And Jesus would say to you, I know. And Christ's knowledge brings encouragement to us. But Christ's knowledge either brings encouragement or it brings trepidation. Because his knowledge can also say, I know where you live and I know how you're living. Maybe you wouldn't be identified with Antipas who was faithful and true all the way through to death, but maybe you're living in what many in that day were living in, and that is a compromised life. He goes on and says this in verse 14, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Oh, there's that sword. Na-na-na-na-na-na. I don't want to listen to this part. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak... To entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise also, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitians. Now the teaching of the Nicolaitians was referred uh, in the first uh church that we looked at, and it's going to be referred to again, and we'll wait to talk about that a little bit. But I want to pull out this deceit or this teaching of Balaam that was going on. How many of you know who Balaam was? If you're to read in Numbers 24 uh, thereafter for a few chapters, you would find the story of Balaam and Balak. Now, the most common story of Balaam is Balaam and the donkey that spoke in rebuke. But this is Balaam and Balak. Balak was the king of the Moabites. And so when the Israelites crossed into the promised land, modern-day Israel, they had to conquer that. God said, I want to give this to you. And one of the people that were in opposition to them were the Moabites. And God says, I want to bless you. I want to give you this. And King Balak of the Moabites was like, oh, my goodness, this is not good for us. Balaam, come here. I always know you like a good buck, and this is sort of what you do for a living. Balaam, I would like you to speak a curse upon the Israelites. Well, he thought about it. He said, I'm in. I'm always good for some money. And I can go either way. I can speak blessings. I can speak curses. If you want to curse and you're going to pay me, I'll speak a curse over the Israelites. But every time Balaam went to speak a curse, he ended up speaking a blessing. God would not let him curse his very people. And so he would open his mouth to speak a blessing, um, speak a curse, and it would come out a blessing. And he would go, Ugh! He tried again and goes, ah He tried again, I can't curse God's people. So he goes to Balak and goes, This ain't working, man. I'd still like to have my money though. He ain't giving you money. He's supposed to curse these people. And he says, I got an idea. This is what you do. You get those Israelite men associating with the Moabite women. And you tell the Moabite women to just start seducing the men, get them into some of the temples. And, and, and to, around some of the idols of their days, you get them to start eating food offered to the idols. You get in the wine and the dining with the women and, and doing immoral things. And guess what's going to happen to those Israelites? They're going to bring cursing upon their very generation, and it'll all break down. That was the teaching of Balaam. The teaching of Balaam was to become impure. To compromise your life. To compromise your values, your beliefs. And become associated with things that are not of God. And Jesus, knowing where they lived in Pergamum, said, I understand what's going on there. It's a tough place to stay true to your faith in that particular day, in that particular environment, at the top of that thousand foot hill. But you cannot compromise your life if you want power, you come to me, the one who is all-powerful. You don't go to Zeus. If you want provision, you come to me. You don't go to the other temple. If you want healing, don't you go to that place and, 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 and have those kinds of uh, strange things with snakes and there's other things I did I could talk about that, that would bring healing you. You look to me. Don't you, don't, don't you go to the other place. The one with the whining and the dining and the pleasure seeking and the sexual promiscuity and immorality. Just don't go there because you will compromise your life. And in compromising your life, you will compromise my word and my truth and you will compromise the blessing I want to bring to your life. God created us. God knows how we are to live. He has given us the instruction book. Our life is found in Him. He who comes to Christ has life and has it abundantly. But so many times, we as his followers begin to associate ourselves with things that are not of God. And we find ourselves in a compromised, destructive pattern of life. God said, just don't do it. Don't go up over that bridge. The bridge is going to end in a place that is not good. Huge drop off. It's broken. And so Jesus shares these words of exhortation and condemnation, if you will, as a means of encouragement ultimately to have them to right the ship to be able to live in a manner that's honoring to God. Can you picture a Jew that day living in Pergamum and they take a trip to Israel and when they're in Israel and they're in Jerusalem, they come associated with some of the people who were followers of Jesus. And then they hear the stories about Jesus and what Jesus did and that Jesus was the true savior and not the gods that were being worshipped back up on their thousand foot hill. And that Jesus came that he could forgive sins and he could give forgiveness and give life abundantly. That Jesus had the power to sustain their existence, to be the Jehovah uh, Jireh, the God who provides. That he was the Jehovah Rapha, the God who would heal. And, and, and so they ended up bending their knee and accepting and believing in Jesus Christ and having this rich community around them. And they were given high fives and encouragements and, and they were going to newcomer socials and having a good time together in a community of people, right? And, and then it was time to go back to Pergamum. But then when they walked through the gates, it just all, just all hit them like a brick wall. Oh my goodness. I'm no longer at youth camp. I've come down the hill. From Mount Palomar, where the kids are gone this week. And they're back in their real world. And what are you going to do? What are you going to do? It's not just students that come down from a hill from camp. It's us as men and women adults in our world when we come down from maybe a, a God experience of a Sunday morning and you're going to hit smack head on into your workplace tomorrow. Smack head on into the things that confront you Into businesses that that have some unethical practices and after parties or hang times or, you know, going out for drinks and and some of the other stuff that maybe can happen even if you go away on trips or something. And, And the promiscuity. You have choices to make. Are you going to stay faithful? Or are you going to compromise God's blessing in your life? And all I can say to you, and it's not me speaking to you, it's the one who with the sharp two-edged sword speaks to you this morning, and he says, don't go there. Do not be enticed by the sin and the teaching of Balaam, that you can find all this and more too in the things of the world. And I'm not saying you need to live in a legalistic, or sometimes it happens with Christians, trivialistic kind of way. God has given us all things to richly enjoy. But He gives us parameters and boundaries. He calls certain things sin and certain things blessings for a reason. And we have to stay within those confines for us to find real freedom. Freedom does not come from lawlessness. It comes by staying true to the One who gave the law for all the world. And you and I we better be diligent because this society in which we live is becoming more and more like a Pergamum. Not with temples, with colonnades and goddesses, but with teachings, with things that are available to us that were never available in generations past. And you and I need to crash on Jesus and say, Jesus, please help me. To not take that which I'm enticed by. Begin to act on it. The action leads to destruction. But may I turn. May I turn and may I run fully into your arms and your embrace. Jesus says, repent therefore. And verse 16, otherwise I soon will come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Our sin brings us either to repentance or to the confrontation, and guess who the confrontation's with? The one with the sharp two edged sword. And you and I may think that we're hiding our sin and getting away from things, but Jesus knows where you live, He knows where I live. Oh Lord, may I live in a place of freedom and obedience, not because I want to be a rules driven religious person because I want to be a child of God that's able to roam and jump and frolic through pastures and meadows that has a fence around it that keeps me in a place of beauty and protection. So this is the hard word of Jesus to you and to me this morning. Does Jesus say to you today something that you need to repent from? I was tempted to go off on a long list of things here. And and maybe I'll just mention a few. Do you, Do you know that the scripture teaches that it's not good to hoard things, to be greedy, to pursue materialistic ends. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not money itself, but the love of money. Do you know that the Scripture teaches that it's immoral to have sex outside of the marriage bond that you're in? That is wrong. It's immoral to have sexual relations before you're married. Scripture also teaches, and I know we get bombarded a lot, by the whole uh, gender identification and, and uh, the LGBT agenda and those kinds of things. But Scripture has specific words to say. And are we like, oh, well, it's sort of change, change through culture. Truth does not change. Do you know that it's unethical to uh, mess with the balances of the scales in business? They would do that. They would slight to one side way more. How does that work out in, in your work environment where you're tempted to, well, just weigh the scales here a little bit more in my direction? I'll send you back to the Word. We have to hear truth. And again, it's not for the destruction and uh, you know, putting us in a straitjacket in life. It's for our freedom and our liberty. And Jesus would say to you and I, I believe, as He said to those in Pergamum, I, I know where you live. I know some of your faithfulness is what's going on. But then again, what are you do, doing doing that? Stop it. Just stop it. And He will come to us And we will have our sin revealed to us. And our sin will either bring us to repentance or to confrontation. But then he goes on and he says this. He who has an ear, let him hear to what the Spirit says to the churches. And that's the same in every one of the seven letters. He says, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. What's the hidden manna? Yeah, we don't know. How's that for an answer? For sure. I could talk about a few other things, but this is where I think I sort of land with it. You know, manna was given in the wilderness for them to have provision. It was bread. Every morning they wake up and there'd be manna. There was a golden bowl of manna that was placed in the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, one of the situations is that the Ark of the Covenant. uh, Maybe it was taken away by one of the prophets before uh, Jerusalem uh, was conquered, and they don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is. And you don't find Jews today walking on where the Temple Mount is, where the Dome of the Rock is, actually, a Muslim mosque right now, because they don't know that maybe the Ark of the Covenant could be buried underneath there somewhere, and nobody knows where it's at. And there's manna, and the golden bowl of manna is in the Ark of the Covenant. So that would be hidden manna maybe. I don't know. I think the hidden manna has to refer to Jesus Christ. And the reason I think it has to refer to Jesus Christ is because of John 6:47 says this, Jesus himself, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes has eternal life. Yes, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. Anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever, and this bread which I will offer so the world may live is my flesh. I believe the hidden manna is Christ Himself, and I will give you the hidden manna. I am the bread of life. And as the bread of life, I will sustain you. I will not only give life to you, but I will give you hope. I will give you inspiration. I will give you encouragement. Why are you doing those things? Come over here to me and eat of this manna. Eat of my life and who I am and my provision will give you bountiful things will give you strength and confidence and provision and wholeness and uh, knowledge. You are going to the wrong wells. Come to me. To him who overcomes, I will give you the hidden manna. And then he says, I will also give him a white stone with a name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Now, what's that mean? We don't know. We don't know. But there's some things we can speculate with here again. When they had a court of justice, the people that sat in the jury, they had two stones. They had a black stone, and they had a white stone. And when the verdict needed to come in, if you thought that they were guilty, you threw in the black stone into a bucket. And if you thought that they needed to be acquitted of what they were charged with, you threw a white stone in. And so then they would collect all the stones, they pull them out, and there are more white stones and black stones, and guess what? The person was acquitted. So maybe it had to do with the whole justice idea. There is a white stone with a new name written on it. Or it was said that if you needed a ticket to get into the movie theater, oh, they didn't have movie theaters, they had other kinds of theaters, other kinds of regal things that you could be a part of, you received a slate of marble, which is white. And in that marble was etched Your name. And so when you walked up to get in, they would say, ticket please. And you'd pull out your white stone and your name was written on that white stone. They also had stones that they put around their neck. Some people did for what they hoped would give them protection to fight off evil spirits, whatever it may be. And so you can speculate as to what the white stone is. I think the white stone means that Jesus grants full pardon, full access, and full safety for your life. And here's the cool thing about it, with a new name written on it. Some of you have some old names. Your name's been drugged through the mud by others and by yourself. And you need a new name. You've gone down that sinful road and God wants to forgive you. He wants to give you a new hope, a new vision, a new identity. And He just wants to give you a new name. And just sort of like when you get married and after a while you sort of have names that only you and your spouse know. And you'd be embarrassed if you told us what name you call your spouse sometime here this morning, right? It's an intimate kind of name. Because Jesus comes to know you when you give your life to him. And he gives you a new stone with a new name written on it. that's an intimate name. You are mine. You are my loved. And we carry that stone with us. So he says to him who overcomes. I will give some of the hidden manna, which is bread, my life, yourself, I'm going to give to you. And I'm also going to give you a new white stone that represents pardon and access and safety. That is my desire. Come to me. Come to me. The evangelist Leonard Ravenhill says this, though. I studied a lot after Leonard Gravenhill. He's got a volume, book. this guy was an on-fire, what's called a revivalist, all right? And I could point you to some of his books if you want to read. He passed on. I actually called him before he died, and I asked him a question, and he says, I'm sorry, but I may well die without seeing revival come in my lifetime. And I thought, oh, may that never be true in my life as a young man. I want to see God break out with the revival. But here's a quote from the evangelist Leonard Gravenhill. He says, the world has lost the power to blush over its sin. Isn't that true? Every day in the news. The church has lost her power to weep over it. Do you weep over the sin of the church? Maybe our witness isn't vibrant because those of us who are part of the church, not just this church, but all churches that proclaim Jesus Christ, we've adhered to the teaching of Balaam and we have lost our way. Where are you at today? Are you a steadfast Christ follower? Are you compromising lordship, compromising morality, compromising truth, compromising character? Compromising your very own belief. Thankfully today, friends, the words of Jesus bring best. I know where you live, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. Will you pray with me? Father here this morning, I don't know how you want to take your sharp double-edged sword and cut us to the very quick but Lord, I would pray that in a loving, caring way, leading us to redemption, to pardon, to acceptance, and to safety, that you would speak to us a word if we are living in sin and we need to walk clear. Lord, for those who have never come into a relationship with you, may they understand that you have provided forgiveness for their sins by dying on a cross, being raised from the grave, and that their sins can be forgiven past, present, and future if they will only turn to you. Lord, may they turn to you and become a follower of yours this day. Lord, for those of us who have been a follower of yours and maybe we've strayed and we've begun to compromise and teachings and other kinds of erroneous errors that society brings our way or even our own marketplace does, Lord, may we repent of those things you're speaking to us about. And may we return to you. Lord, we thank you that you've written our name on a white stone. Lord, may we be endeared to you. And may that perfect love that you give us cast down any fear we have of returning to you. Lord, bless your people here this hour. In your name we pray.